Hello and welcome to the Q York podcast. It's great to have you with us today and we hope that as you listen, you'll be inspired as we continue on our shared quest together. This podcast is entirely free and yet it's not cheap to put together and wouldn't be possible without the generosity of our supporters. So if you consider yourself a supporter of Q, then please head to qyork.co.uk and hit donate to show your support today because there really is no Q without you. Thank you and enjoy today's message. Well, I thought maybe everybody would be on their feet having a right good bop in that and said, dream on. And he was right, but never mind. We'll chalk that one up. But it shows you how we feel funny and we don't always connect with joyful things. Uh, I was watching a TED Talk this week and a woman comes on the stage and she just cracks out laughing like you wouldn't believe, like raucous laughter. And as I'm watching it, I'm thinking, ooh, you know, what's going on here? And she laughed for probably a minute and everybody's feeling really uncomfortable. She said, right, she said, turn to your neighbour and ask what did you think of that? And of course, the truth was they all felt really uncomfortable, mainly because they didn't know what to do. They didn't know how to feel. And it actually shows you that our understanding of any expressions of joy have got to be put through a sieve of, how does this make me feel? It's true, isn't it? Do we feel uncomfortable? Am I okay with this? But if we're really on a quest for joy, there's got to be something that goes beyond that sense of protection of ooh, my reputation or what have you. Um, so anyway, this is what we're doing tonight. We're on a quest for joy. Who'd like a bit more joy in their life? Yeah. Now, uh, on that Trolls video, which was wonderful, um, one, one of the people, they're called Bergens, but I'm, I mean, I'm not that familiar with it myself, but uh, it or him or she, I don't know what to refer, but it, they say this, there's only one thing that can make us happy and only one Bergen can provide it. Now I want to say, does that sound familiar to some of us when it comes down to our religious understandings? Over the years it's been palmed out that there's only one way that you can be happy and only one thing that can provide it. And I think we've been sold a mischief. So tonight in our quest for joy, it may be confusing for some of you, as sometimes it was for me, that we're going to use the word happiness as well as the word joy. Now, for some of us, happiness and joy were meant to be kept separate. They belonged in very different camps. Now, if that's not you, don't worry about it. But just have a think about it for a minute because there are many things that totally rule our lives but we're not aware of it and it has to be at least put on the table before we can make any change to our lives. So joy was godly, it was deep, it was God-centered, it was internal, it was permanent, it was the privilege of Christians, the believers, and only God could give it. The Christian had joy, but outside of God, life was joyless. The world had an inferior product called happiness, because really the world had nothing to be happy about. Now, if that wasn't your experience, that's fine, but some of you will go, yeah, I get that, so come on, support me, 
because we're wanting to tear down some of these uh, mischiefs tonight, aren't we? This is what Q is about. So, happiness was worldly, it was shallow, it was self-centered, it was external, it was temporary. The poor relation of joy, we could get this for ourselves by seeking pleasure, but there was a problem. Satisfaction from worldly things was what? Sin. Ooh, so we've got a problem. But wasn't pleasure God's idea? Weren't we designed with senses that taste and touch, see, hear, and have myriads of nerves that experience our incredible world? When did God become such a killjoy with a mission to spoil all our fun? Possibly when the good news of what Jesus had come to reveal got mixed up with religion and legalism. If Jesus died because of our sin, and if sin is created by pursuing pleasure, then to be happy and to have joy is what killed Jesus. You can see why it became hip to be miserable. I can't believe that my understanding of joy was attached to denial, to restriction, to sacrifice, to suffering. Oh, the joy, we would say. But there wasn't much joy at all. Such a sad story. A bit like our understanding of love, which was expressed through violence, the wrath of God poured out on Jesus, his son. Can you see the parallel? So I feel we have been sold a great mischief. And so tonight we want to begin the redemptive process of happiness and open ourselves up to joy, realising they both belong in the same camp and they are available to us all, but it is an inside job. So, some like to believe that joy is a fundamental foundation we all have inside, but it gets lost in the circumstances of life, like the injustice that we were talking about last week. How many of us, when an injustice occurs, it makes us lose our joy. See what I mean? And things happen and we lose our joy. So it's the circumstances of life that just bury our joy. How can we have joy when life is what it is? The best we can hope for then are moments of happiness. Others suggest that it's happiness that is the foundation and that it's happiness that has longevity and it's joy these are the moments of surprise and wonder. Others see joy as an inner aliveness that appreciates all that's good around us and constantly tells us that all is well regardless of circumstances. These moments of appreciation all stack up and when banked result in a happy life. The unappreciators of these seemingly insignificant moments need a major happy event to even get in a good mood. So you can see the problem, can't you? Others suggest it's how we measure the experiences we have. Joy is measured by surprise and wonder. They are Tigger moments. Who knows who Tigger is? Come on, the kids will. Who's Tigger? Bouncy, bouncy, yeah. Fun, 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 yeah. Tigger moments of jumping up and down Whereas happiness is measured as a consistent state that exists over a long period of time. It's what is seen to exist at the end of the story, happy ever after. 
So there are many ways that we look at joy and happiness and they can be used in same ways and opposite ways, but these are the ways we can look at them. Now, I particularly believe, and this is my uh, personal opinion, that it's an inner magnet that connects itself to moments that we have that are not tainted by anything other than what is in that moment. There is no past history that brings us fear or guilt or shame, or there's no future where anxiety belongs. It's just the moment in itself that is just pure joy. Now that's where we would like to get to, and we believe tonight that we can bring us to that place. Now don't worry, if you think tonight we don't make it, there'll be more next week. So keep on the quest. Okay, thank you. Now, I must admit that uh, this subject is not the easiest for me because in um, Winnie the Pooh spiel, uh, Chris is Tigger and I am Eeyore's. <laughs> so, um, I find a little bit of melancholy quite refreshing. In fact, I find a lot of melancholy a lot refreshing to be, <laughs> if I'm perfectly honest. I've taken a lot of joy in my life in melancholy, which is not always the healthiest thing to do, and maybe we'll clear that up a little bit next week. Um, when, we, when, we raised the, um, when Chris raised the subject matter on Tuesday, when we have our initial planning meeting, uh, about joy, one thing started running through my head. It was a song. And uh, people like Chris and Margaret, and, and uh, Keith and Margaret and, and Barbara will, <coughs> will identify with this. All I could hear was room for business... Room for pleasure, but for Christ the crucified, not a place that he can enter, in the heart for which he died. In other words, pursue business, pursue pleasure of any kind, and you will go down a path that will ultimately leave you destroyed and distraught, without hope and joy and happiness. So, the one actually much less for me than to come to church, you know, because it's like obvious nothing else um, was going to work or was, was allowed, and that's pretty sad, really. Um, uh, what's interesting in this, this clip from the movie Chocolat, which is a great movie, um, I think the, um, the parable within it is just, is just very, very powerful, and if you've never seen it, you should watch it, I think it's great. But in Chocolat, what you saw there, that the, the answer to spiritual austerity, which the Comte, the Count, had introduced in the village, everybody was being looked over about what they did. The answer to spiritual austerity was a party. And uh, the authority figure, the Comte, the Count, was not invited to the party. said, where's the Comte? He's not invited. Uh, and that's because he was a killjoy. Uh, and why? Because the slide that we put up was interesting that God wants you to be holy, not happy. Uh, and sadly, some of us, not all of you, but some of us have grown up <coughs> very overtly with this idea that God wants you to be holy and not happy and that happiness will impinge upon your holiness and your holiness is the thing that makes God be okay with you 
and God's not okay with you unless you're holy, which really meant perfect, which of course nobody ever is. And so, so we were told you have to achieve this thing that you couldn't achieve because if you did achieve it, it was pride and therefore you hadn't achieved it because your pride was not holiness and therefore you could never be what you were supposed to be. That, that is the great burden that religion and religious institutional thinking puts upon people and what it does, it makes you dependent now, I will say from my perspective, it helps one to build a much bigger church in a situation of incredible dependency. Because it means that you are lacking and you need what I have and I give you what I have. One of the great penalties of, of true joy and that is freedom. And when people have freedom, they exercise freedom. But God doesn't want you not to be happy. See, see, I believe that to many people, God is not invited, just like the comp to the count wasn't invited to the party, because the view of God is he's the great cosmic killjoy. Why would I want to follow God? He's just a great cosmic killjoy whose, whose, whose whole, whole expression, whose whole, what do you have when you do politics and you have your, no, what, what? Manifesto, thanks Jen. It's like God's manifesto for getting elected is as the cosmic killjoy. It's all about what you can't do, what you mustn't do, what you don't do. But he loves you. But just don't. I read a wonderful thing this week which really, it, 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 kind, of, it, it, um, it kind of triggered in me because I contend more to be there. And it was... It was um, um, oh, what was the thing about don't, don't, I can't, oh, it's, no, I, it was, it was the three-worder, oh, you know the, don't give up, right, don't give up, this, this was, this was for Eos. don't, full stop, give up, full stop, <laughs> see, there are so many ways to see anything, regarding how you perceive that life is. You, you can have the non-killjoy God who says, don't give up, let's have a party. Or you can have the God I was raised with, don't, give up. God is not the great cosmic killjoy. I, I think the, 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 the Feast of Lent is very sad for me because what it says is, starve yourself, deny yourself. Like somehow... This God who we say is love is going to be really pleased and we can best attach to him through denial, through loss, through giving stuff up, through doing Lent. Now, I learned a little secret. How many of you know about um, Shrove Tuesday and Ash Wednesday? And Ash Wednesday is the beginning of Lent. Shrove Tuesday, I learned the secret, you see, when you don't know this stuff, basically Shrove Tuesday was eat, eat pancakes, eat lots of pancakes, pig out on pancakes. Because for the next 40 days, it's going to be pretty tough. So somebody wonderfully said, I'll tell you what, if we're going to have to do this, let's at least have a pig out before it, before the makers eat nothing. See? It's the party versus the fast. Now, I do believe that there is within the Gospel of John uh, a single verse that shifts the axis of understanding and it shifts the axis of understanding the purpose of Jesus' life and ministry. And what it does, it shifts it from sorrow to joy. Now what's interesting is this verse is located right at the beginning of Jesus' life 
and ministry. And somehow we shifted the axis back to sorrow when the axis was always meant to be joy. You know, as, as dear old Billy Connolly says from his Catholic upbringing, you know, all he understood from that was Jesus died and it's your fault. See, we, we shifted the axis somehow to sorrow and then we find it difficult to be joyful. This was the verse, it's in John chapter 2. And it says this, this, the first of his miraculous signs that Jesus performed at Canary in Galilee. Now, might sound insignificant, but, but John thought it was important to say this was the first, or in other words, our first experience of a miraculous sign of what all this was ever supposed to be about occurred not in a synagogue, not in a temple, not in some sacrifice, but it occurred at a wedding. So in John chapter 2, John talks about the first thing Jesus did was turn up at a wedding and the wedding was a party and so Jesus was immediately saying, party is where it's at. Now there are different types of parties. If you're like me, most parties I hate. So if I come to your party, you can honestly say he's there because he loves me. Because he's going to hate every minute of this. Beth, I love you. Where's Claire? You know that I love you because I came to your party. The greatest expression of love. Now, some of you, Maggie and Dave, love a party. I watch Maggie and Dave and, and, and I, I have envy because I see Maggie and Dave getting after it there and I think, it's fantastic. Would I do that? No, not a chance. But you see, it's, it's this axis of thing about the gospel. Now, now I want to say to people like me, that's okay. It's okay not to be that kind of person. But it's not okay to be miserable. It's not okay to lack joy. You've got to find some way in which joy manifests itself and comes to the surface. So, so Jesus does his first thing at a wedding. It's the chosen launch pad. A wedding was the chosen launch pad for Jesus' life and ministry. The chosen sign was changing water into wine. And the chosen medium was a party. That's the very core essence of the first manifestation of what Jesus is about. So how the heck did we manage to dismantle that to become this miserable thing that so often becomes the expression of Christianity. Even we turn communion into a morose, melancholy sadness because Jesus died. And we miss the point that he only died for one reason, so that he could break the power of death and rise again so the party could carry on. So let me read you this. Okay, we've just got a minute. It's important. For the first thousand years of its existence... The Christian church placed much more emphasis on the resurrection than the crucifixion. For the first three centuries, the Christians were known for their joy. The symbols of the catacombs, you know, that's where they buried the early Christians, like every other indication of early teaching, show the glad, bright, loving character of the Christian faith. It was a religion of joy and not of gloom, of life and not of death, 
of tenderness and not of severity. That makes you have to look at the cross different. We find in the catacombs neither the cross of the 5th and 6th centuries, nor the crucifixes of the 12th, nor the tortures and martyrdoms of the 17th, nor the skeletons of the 15th, nor the death-head skulls of the 18th. Instead of these, the symbols of beauty, hope and peace dominate. The earliest inscription of a Latin cross in the catacombs of Rome is on a tomb of the Empress Galla Placidia in AD 451. Before that, you could not find a cross on a tomb because they were so bought into the joy of the feasting. No picture of the crucifixion until the 9th century. No portable crucifix till long after that. At the core of their message was the resurrection, life now, the power of life dominant over death, God's kingdom showing up here and now, changing the way things are and giving us joy. That's what this was supposed to be all about. That's why we're pursuing on a quest for joy. And it finished by this by saying the church did not create the resurrection story. The resurrection story created the church. And when you really catch the truth of the joy of that, it begins to create something that is what we are looking to be. Now, now in, in the account of these events recorded in John, it points out that the use of six water pots that were normally used for ceremonial cleansing and ritual washing are what Jesus told them to fill up with water so he could do his miracle. Now, when you bear in mind, these pots were for ceremonial cleansing and ritual washing. Now, now we're not Jews, so we don't relate it in that Jewish context. But if you think it was a whole lot of water, because each one of them could hold up to 30 gallons, that's 136 litres, and there's six of them. That's a lot of ceremony. That's a lot of ritual. And that's a lot of washing. But unfortunately, when we miss the good news being about joy, it's replaced with a lot of ceremony, a lot of ritual, and a lot of washing. That you have to do 30 gallons worth in each pot, and six pots, so you better make sure that you're ceremonially, ritually, and wholly clean from the washing. The wonderful thing is, Jesus symbolically says, let's fill those ceremonial things that were for ritual, and let me change the nature of that. A lot of pressure, sounds like a lot of misery, but Jesus turned that water into wine, which is a whole lot of joy, and he said, now instead of washing in ceremonial water, drink the wine that's joy. And the trouble is people like me and Dave were raised that it was all about washing ceremonially. You've got to get clean. You've got to do what's right. You've got to clean yourself. Jesus comes along and says, let's not use this for washing. Let's change its whole nature and turn the water to wine so that you get joy and then live your life from the place of joy and celebration. And uh, it says that as they did that and served out the wine at the master of the feast, because, you know, there were monkeys back then, just like the monkeys now. You would normally serve the good wine first, and then when people had had a few, you served out the rubbish stuff. You know, you brought the cheap wine. Um, I will be honest, just as a point of confession, I have two racks of wine. One is for those who appreciate wine, and one is for others who nip down to the spa. 
So I do apologize. Um, you can probably assess my assessment of you by the wine that I serve you when you come to the house. So have a look at the bottle next time and then we can have a conversation about that. But that's what they used to do. They would bring out the good wine and then when people had had a few, bring out the rubbish stuff. But, but it's, John records it, the master of the feast was blown away. They'd already had a few. The place was happy, it was a party. But he said, this is amazing. And people said, how come that you've saved the best wine until last? The best until now. In fact, the, the interesting thing is I was always taught this in, a, in the longevity context that God saved the best wine till last, but it says the best wine till now. I want this to be your now. I want your experience of the loving God to be a now experience. I want how you understand Jesus to be a thing of now, however that looks, that brings the wine into your experience because it seems to suggest that the best wine always comes from a transformation. Because this didn't come from a grapevine, this came from the ceremonial pots that were full of water, which says the best wine comes from transformation. There's a lesson. The best wine comes from transformation. If you want to know where the best wine of joy will come in your life, it will come from transformation. And when transformation occurs, you'll say, it saved the best until now because of the power of transformation. And transformation comes from a realization. Hey, this is different. And realization is when the heart and the eyes are open to something which counteracts despair. And I want you to have that joy. I want you to be able to loose the shackles and experience what really is that beautiful gospel that has come to all of us. I, I still believe, I, I, the Bible to me is fascinating because it says more than it says, if you know what I mean. So in what I just showed you tonight, just the very statement that this was the first miracle. It's saying more than it's saying. It's trying to get something through to you. This is what this is about. And when it talks about the transformation of the water, it's trying to say something to you that there is in transformation a changing from water to wine, a changing to something that, that, that kickstarts the party, not just around you, but within you. And, and I think we all need a little, yeah. a little dose of of that. But the reason the early Christians had joy over the resurrection is because that to them was the mark of transformation. Death to life, water to wine, darkness to light, transformation. And they believed sincerely in a resurrection and a resurrection that was theirs. I want you tonight to understand and believe that that same resurrection is what is available to you. Resurrected out of the pots of ceremony came the wine of joy. Out of the tomb came the life of Jesus. And out of this pot, this vessel, this thing, and what is within it now can come a transformation that I believe has a divine touch upon it. But I also believe something from there that if there is a God, and I believe there is, it is his absolute will and purpose to transform that water into wine. And all we have to do is come to the realization that a change needs to take place, can take place, will take place, and to be willing to receive it. So, Father, bless us in this place. I pray that every heart will be touched. 
I pray that all the water will be turned to wine. I pray the sorrow will be turned to joy. And I pray that we will go from the misery of exclusion to the joy of inclusion and from the sadness of ceremony to the joy of party in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to another Q York podcast. If you've been inspired by what you've heard today, then why not email us at info at qyork.co.uk and let us know who you are and where you're listening from. We love that you're listening to us and we'd love to hear from you too. Did you know you can also watch all of the talks from Q on our YouTube channel? Just go to youtube.com forward slash qchurchyork. We look forward to having you with us again soon. Until then, enjoy the quest.